And now, coming to you live from the Waldorf Room, high atop the legendary Coot Street Motel 6, it's Gary K. K Wolf, Jonathan Strahan, and special guest Campbell Memorial Award-winning novelist Kathleen Ann Gooden on the Coot Street Podcast! Excellent! We have to to let that fade away. That's the long tail on the intro. (laughs) It's the long tail for this podcast. (laughs) Good morning, Gary. Oh, good evening, Jonathan, and good evening, Kathy. Kathy, you're in Georgia. Is that where, is that where you are now? Or? Right now, I'm in Tennessee. I live in Tennessee oh. and commute to to Atlanta every week to teach. Wow. Oh, wow. That sounds a significant commute. Yeah, it's about 200 miles each way, but it's a lovely drive. Does it give, okay. you, does it give you time to, to, to write, or are you mostly sort of commuting and teaching? Theoretically, I thought it would give me time to write, but but that was a foolish thought. No, I'm mostly commuting and and teaching, uh, keeping up with my students, the assignments. I'm teaching one creative writing course and a course that I called from Earth from the Earth to the Moon, and it's about the '60s. So um, I've realized that it was it was a ridiculous idea to think that I could fit the '60s into a semester. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I, I imagine to the students, you might as well be teaching them about the 14th century. Oh, exactly, exactly. Um, I, I can tell them about the time when uh, the, the Great Revolution uh, in in music was the transistor radio, actually. <laughs> and and Meet the Beatles came out in mono, and uh, yeah, it's 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 kind of like the Middle Ages. <laughs> kind of fun. <laughs> And just in, in, in the creative writing course, do you, this is not specifically oriented towards science fiction or fantasy, I presume. It's just no, no, it's not. But uh, because I am a science fiction writer, I, this is the I think this is the third time I've taught the class. I started teaching in 2010, and uh, my reputation is such that I find that m- more students are aware that I'm there now. So I do have a fair number of writers who just want to write science fiction, which is fine. It, it's very interesting, but I didn't want to um, I didn't want to make the scope of the class just science fiction. Uh, if if we had several writing classes, workshops, whatever, then I think mm-hmm. that that would be a good way to go. But I wanted it to be open to to any any student who is interesting interested in writing mm-hmm. narrative fiction. Are you surprised to find yourself teaching science fiction? Actually, well, I was at first, but I'm not now. Hmm. I found that uh, Lisa Yazik, who is the director of, of undergraduate studies there, uh, invited me to teach there, and uh, she she thought I was the perfect choice. There, the um, the curriculum at Georgia Tech, Georgia Institute of Technology, is an engineering, uh, chiefly. Uh, an engineering school. So in the department I'm in, which is literature, media, and communication, uh, kind of kind of envelops and uh, twists around all those strands into uh, a number of different approaches to, oh, the future of technology, the, mm-hmm. the, the future of uh, culture, uh, and studying the history of culture and the history of technology and culture and uh, it, it's just in science fiction 
really threads into that quite strongly. So you must have the same. Uh, yeah, you must have the same kind of. You must have talked to. I know you've talked to Joe Haldeman about that because he's teaching at MIT. And I um, see him a bit. Yes. I mean, he's got uh, his sense, and I haven't talked to him about it recently. But his sense has always been that at a place like MIT, you get. You, well, nobody goes to MIT to study creative writing primarily, I guess. But the people you get in class tend to be, um, well, they tend to be scientists and basically science geeks who really, really, really want to take a writing course which involves science fiction. Um, whereas a lot of you know creative writing courses start out with the rule that you can't write science fiction. Right. So, so it's it's an opportunity that if they were going to a lot of of universities with a uh, that are that were known that are known for their uh, writing curriculum. They might not get that opportunity to explore this mode of writing. Well, I, go ahead, Jonathan. Well, just a question that occurs to me is that you're in this position where you're teaching creative writing to people who want to write science fiction. So obviously, they're quite engaged by the field, the the idea of the field, and learning more about it, engaging with it. The field itself right now seems to be going through at least part of a conversation, we're touching on this before the podcast, of being somewhat tired, possibly being fatigued about uh, the idea of the future being unable to commit to a clear vision that everyone can believe in, or just the writer themselves can believe in. Is that something that you find to be the case in, in your reading and in engaging with students? I find it to be the case, uh, particularly I found it to be the case this summer when I uh, actually wrote a review of the New Yorker's uh, science fiction issue mm -hmm. uh, that came out earlier this year. And it was, it was very interesting for a number of reasons. I, uh, I really, I, concentra I found myself concentrating a lot on the cover because it features a... Uh, uh, I don't know, kind of an, a highbrow cocktail party with a, uh, a rip in, in the, uh, in the uh, warp of reality and, and you see um, a uh, Captain Future-based mm. looking character. He's pretty much Captain Future with some, some other space science fiction-y looking characters behind him. And, and the, the, yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and, <laughs> so... So it, it, it's it's a lot of fun, but the the, the interior of the issue had uh, they invited writers who are not known that much for writing science fiction to uh, to uh, write science fiction stories or stories I guess that they considered kind of science fictiony, and they had China Mievel and Ursula Le Guin and oh who else Margaret Atwood. And I'm I'm missing a person here. Was Gibson in that? Yeah, Gibson was in oh, there. Yeah, he was. Yeah. They they basically wrote little sidebars about why I write yeah, science fiction pieces, right? Right. And they 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 did not contribute any fiction. So it was odd in that way. And but it it did it did see it it didn't quite start a conversation. I I didn't feel as if there was any kind of of current flowing between the two. The two schools of the, uh, you know, exciting up-and-coming writers uh, and and also established writers who are known for writing fiction, which might be considered science fiction uh, in some mm -hmm. venue. I actually like this development. I've seen 
a number of my students writing stories that, uh, in which the, the science fiction is not necessarily foregrounded, but because our, as, as has been remarked on a lot of times, our present is now so, so science fictional that, uh, that it, it really takes a whole different gloss. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's kind of a different, different way that, uh, of writing. So, so your take your take was that that New Yorker issue was not demeaning or or laying drawing a line in the sand sort of thing. Like you, science fiction people can can contribute to the New Yorker as long as you don't contribute fiction. Well, I must say, I felt as if it was drawing a line in the sand. Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> exactly. It it did st uh, strike me that the science fiction people, I guess, who were contributed contrib contributed to it by and large were asked to contribute in a nostalgic mode, which was an interesting thing. You yes. know, uh, they weren't given the opportunity. I think maybe Mayville t uh, touched on a more forward-looking kind of science fiction. But basically, it was all looking back to those good old days, which, of course, are evoked on the cover of the book. And then mm. you bring, you know, you, they've brought in what uh, you know, people like Juno Diaz and Jennifer Egan to write for it. And they do a fine job, but they're not necessarily what we would consider the cutting edge of the field uh, at the moment. Uh, do you think that that nostalgic view both in, in, inside the field and outside the, the field is a barrier to it moving forward? Uh, I, I think that, that maybe that's the case. I'm, I'm really not sure. I, I'm finding a lot of, uh, of more what I would call hybrid work and, and venues for hybrid work. I, in the latest issue of uh, Poets and Writers, they had a sidebar about uh, venues for uh, this is a you know magazine mm -hmm. that aspiring writers read. I, I think it's mostly for MFA students to tell you the truth. But but uh, yes. anyway, they had this big sidebar. If you write slipstreamy or let's not call it science fiction, let's call it speculative fiction. Let's call mm -hmm. it uh, something else, not really science fiction because that hurts our our brains, but uh, but anyway, there were. I thought it was nice. There were a number of venues that that uh, that they put in their sidebar that they said, well, these these are the kinds of, of uh, publications that are now looking for the kind of more mm -hmm. keep saying hybrid, and I've never thought of that word before. But it's it's kind of uh, neither nor. You know, one or the other, but and I, I think that's kind of neat, actually. I, I really like I really like that movement. I think it's probably healthy. I mean, it, but I, I, don't, I don't know. There was a um, I, I know you, Kathy, you gave a lecture on on the two. Or was it a lecture, an essay about the the talk on the about the two cultures, the old CP Snow thing? And if I remember correctly, you were making the point that one of the things that modernism and postmodernism has done is maybe maybe make that schism worse. That uh, these, even these kinds of venues you're talking about seem to be, and I know, I know what you mean, the kind of things that, well, conjunctions may be a good example. Um, right. Where it's open to a certain kind of science fiction as long as it's not too sciencey. Right. And and I and I think I think that the reason for this is that a lot of people who just categorically do not say that they do not read science fiction, and this has happened to me in a lot of different venues. And, and I actually I, I find it amusing um, that when you tell them that you write science fiction, they look at their watch and they say, "Oh, especially at literary conferences or something like oh, yeah. that." 
Oh, oh, um, I have an appointment. I, I really, I have to rush out right away. Uh, uh, sorry. It's like even just talking to you, they'll be contaminated with, with this uh, <laughs> low kind of fiction, and uh, it might infect their brains. I don't know. They might burst out into science fiction without realizing it. But uh, <laughs> so, so yes, I, I think there's a, a strong sense of disdain in the literary establishment. Uh, take that describe whatever you might think it, it is but the kind of the kind of people that that basically look down on science fiction and I think that it it is a matter of the pulp history of science fiction but it's also a matter uh, of it sometimes being perceived as being difficult to read mm-hmm. uh, and I I taught neuromancer last year I, I taught I taught a class uh, of six science fiction novels and I thought, oh, they'll, you know, they'll love Gibson, they'll love Neuromancer, and I, and they found it difficult to read. And 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 I, as I started rereading it, I thought, yeah, it is kind of, you know, you have to stop and think. What are these cool new words that 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 embody that, that illustrate a whole different way of thinking and a whole new culture? Uh, that you, it really slows down a reader. Whereas, if you're reading the other kind of hybrid slipstream or something usually they don't put any any hard words they they speak in normal <laughs> english they their their science is is very light it's like yes we we can time travel but it it doesn't matter how so it's all you know it's all very smooth for and, all the dystopian fiction which is out there now especially the young adult dystopian fiction most of it reduces the level of science in the world rather than enhances it. So, so, so in a sense, they're, they're, they're simplified versions of, uh, of modern culture rather than enhanced versions. Yes, and, and perhaps it's the old canard of, uh, to, to appeal to a whole lot of people. You have to, to simplify down to a, kind of a lowest common denominator. Mm. But I don't know if that's really true or not, but it, it, it may be true in some ways regarding science fiction and, and other literature, then it could be that somebody has had a very bad experience with science fiction and, and it and it warped their whole their whole outlook and, and they'll never never touch it again and they'll they'll never go down to an awful aisle where their friends might yeah. see them. <laughs> Do you think it's possible that science fiction is intrinsically a minority interest? And what what I mean by that is not the the icons of science fiction which have been absorbed into popular culture to, to a very very great uh, level but that kind of complexity that moment of dis, dis, you know, uh, disconnection uh, dislocation whatever it is that actually if you're a dedicated science fiction reader tends to intrigue and engage you, you know you come across unfamiliar words you're trying to work out what what they mean in the context of what you're reading uh do you think that 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 is a minority thing, much as another one of your loves, uh, jazz, can be? I believe it is. So I find myself at the intersection in the Venn diagram of <laughs> of, <laughs> of two forms of art that are uh, that they're the people who love them regard them as um, very intellectual and uh, just just utterly fascinating, and those who don't like them say, "Ah, I don't understand." And and I think that that's that's somewhat the case when I when I was growing up my father who who is an engineer read science fiction and but he, he read uh, omnivorously and in and uh, in a Catholic sort of way he didn't just read science fiction but I it was all over the house and 
Mm-hmm. And as a as a young girl, I didn't like it very much because it was full of of grown up men acting what I I thought was in very silly ways, and and it didn't attract me much. I liked uh, other forms of literature at that time. I became really interested in, but it was always in the back of my mind, just like. Uh, when I got my own transistor radio in 1960, I, I had musical freedom. I didn't have to listen to jazz. So I listened to, you know, the, the top 100 hits counting down from, from 100 to 1 every New Year's Day, and, you know, from WKBW or something. And, uh, uh, and, you know, went through the 60s just like any other teenager, just completely enthralled with all the different strains of music that were that were, uh, you know, on the air on on FM radio, which we really didn't have before the 60s, and on underground radio stations. But in the mid-70s, when things were changing in in that, you know, the corporations had kind of taken over uh, that kind of uh, uh, outburst of music in the 60s. And um, I, I, I started becoming more interested in jazz again, and it was kind of like that with science fiction. Maybe I did read some of the books that my father had because I was more into short stories, I guess, at that time in anthologies. Mm-hmm. He had, he has probably every Judith Merrill anthology that he could have bought at that time. I think she was one of his favorites. And I, I just started becoming more attracted to science fiction at that time. And then women were writing science fiction too. So you had, you know, the dispossessed, you had the mm-hmm. Snow Queen, uh, you had, and and later on, I read Sheila Finch. Uh, I, I would go to the store and I would I would think, oh, women are writing science fiction, and perhaps I can write science fiction too. I don't understand it myself, but I I really do love it. It's kind of, I mean, this is a this is going off on a tangent for a second, but uh, when you start talking about uh, uh, people like uh, Sheila Finch, and there's, I mean, because we've talked a lot about. Uh, Joanna Russ and 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 Ursula Le Guin and uh, uh, and James Tiptree, but uh, some of those writers that seemed to me to be very formative for a lot of writers back in that period, Pamela Sargent, Vonda McIntyre, um, right? Are they are they still as influential today for younger writers and especially younger women writers? I'm not really sure. I I, I can't I can't say for sure. I know that uh, uh, Vonda McIntyre and Actually, not Pamela Sargent so much. Vonda McIntyre seems to be in a lot of anthologies. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, and that's what I see in teaching. I see, I see how the canon becomes formalized. And in a way, I'm, I'm interested in the scholarly aspects of science fiction. But mm-hmm. I'm also not that happy with the fact that a lot of really good science fiction stories are not widely available for professors to use Mm -hmm. as material. So I've had this idea that I have taken no farther than various panels and stuff because it seems like a lot of work, but I think that Cepho should form a bank where uh, writers can put their stories in and they can be downloaded on iTunes or something for 99 cents, and then professors could make up their own anthologies. Uh, because it's very hard to get a lot of uh, stories without violating copyright. Right. I always, you know, I just would write to, I wrote to Terry Bisson and, and 
and said, can I please use um, Bear's Discover Fire because I haven't had my students buy an anthology that it's in. And he said, fine. But you realize it's really science fiction. I said, oh, sure. Uh, but <laughs> I, whatever you say, Terry. Um, but uh, I, I think that that is a large part of this uh, uh, canon formation uh, because the stories just aren't, aren't that available. Yeah, and but some of them are available, as you say, from from individual writers, and sometimes people put stories up on their websites. Um, but that can be an enormous amount of work for a professor who doesn't, who isn't savvy to all the different writers and all the different websites. Exactly, and and you know, so I can see the worth of an anthology or some kind of editing process or some kind of portal where they can go and 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 see what other professors or, or anyone has said about a particular story and uh, and how it relates to other things that they're teaching. Um, but I, I just do think that there there should be a wider availability and and, and in that way certain writers wouldn't, wouldn't get lost uh, to you know continued readership. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, and I think there are classic stories where they might even have been anthologized. And, uh, mm -hmm. But anthologies come and go. That's the problem. Yes, yeah. they do. I mean, any book comes and goes, potentially. Uh, right. But yeah. Yeah. I, I guess the thing is, is there an uh, – it sounds like like a good project. I'd like to see a website that would be you know, teachsf.com kind of a thing, and you register all these stories on it, and you uh, tag them so they can be sorted by theme and era and all those kind of things people might want to know about, and you allow the writers themselves to attach it so they can sell the ebook of the story through that site for, as you say, a dollar or something. And I could see that working, though. I just wonder what volume of interest academically there would be for something like that. I don't know. Uh, people people would have to know about it. The, yeah. the well, I, I think I think the pool of of people who teach science fiction literature is is actually pretty small. So it wouldn't take that much work to get the word out. I don't think. Yeah. Right. I mean, it, it would have to be something that would simply be sitting there yeah, available, yeah. and nobody's going to get rich on. I had this discussion with uh, any number of publishers. I mean. Tor did an anthology of science fiction based on the Science Fiction Readers, uh, Science Fiction Research Association. Wesleyan has a new anthology. By and large, publishers overestimate the size of that market because there are only a few of us that teach science fiction, and those that do teach it, except for places probably like Kansas, teach it maybe once every year or once every two years. So mm -hmm. it's, 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 it's not a huge market for anthologies. But if you had, it's the long tail thing. If you had a lot of short stories available for a lot of teachers at reasonable cost, I think people would take care of it. Yes, and it would bypass the the, the copyright issue. Yeah. Let me ask you a question about your first novel, Queen City Jazz, or at least a start, use it as a starting point for something. And I, I guess the question I have is, it, it came out back in the uh, mid-90s, I think, and what, 1994? And that's, that's was right. was really well received. Started off the nanotech quartet, and was really um, steeped with nanotechnology and biotech. Has your view of those things changed a lot since then? And has your view of the future in fiction changed a lot since then? Okay, I think that act, to tell you the truth, mm -hmm. I think that nanotechnology is moving along at a very, very fast pace. We have a huge nanotech center at, at Georgia Tech, 
and every uh, every week they have a seminar at Wednesday, so I get the you know the invitations to the uh, you know the materials lecture on the carbon yeah. nanotubes or whatever. And uh, during that time, let's see, it actually in 2000 when I had published um, Crescent City Rhapsody, I got a lot of invitations that were academic in nature uh, to give talks about nanotechnology and the future. And during that time, I went to the National Science Foundation in, in Arlington, Virginia, for their, uh, they have a Friday uh, silly science fiction movie lunch. Yeah. And they said, come on down, you know, and, and talk to us during our, during our lunch on Friday. So I did. And I met Dr. Bainbridge, who was uh, instrumental in, in working with, uh, uh, well, he he was developing a government vision on on what nanotechnology might mean in the future, and uh, and I met him and I spoke with him for a while and he's just very interesting and has written a lot about um, oh nanotechnology and human potential and it's it's a lot less radical than the Drexlerian vision that I was working from in. In 1992 90, or whatever, when I when I was writing Queen City Jazz, and the Drexlerian vision was very scary to the government because not not that they thought it would necessarily become true, but they didn't want that to be the vision of nanotechnology for the public because they were afraid that it would stifle uh, nanotech research or anything associated. Mm -hmm. And they were very nervous about prey coming out. Uh, because it was so, you know, the 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 whatevers are going to escape, and you mm -hmm. know, blood music only only on just the big screen. And yeah, yeah it's all about fear of the future and restraining science and, and and casting it as being the big evil, terrible thing that was going to happen. That's right, and and go, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, finish your thought. I don't let me get started on Crichton. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, sorry to bring them up, but okay. but that you know they they were actually very worried at the National Science Foundation, and really? so so uh, Michael Bain, uh, Dr. Bainbridge started reading Crescent City Rhapsody, and mm -hmm. this is about the uh, the beginning of the uh, the nanotech kind of surge world that uh, had come to well apocalyptic fruition or whatever in Queen City mm -hmm. Jazz. This is, uh, actually, I think I started in, in 2010, so uh, so anyway, this is how uh, research and development feeds into this uh, this nanotech uh, stuff that, that kind of gets away from people. So he started reading it with a, with a good heart and good intent, and he would email me every once in a while. He says, oh, I just love this, and I'm getting to this part, and I'm getting to that part, and there is a section in the middle where... Washington DC is changed by a nanotech surge and he emailed me the day that he was reading the chapter before that mm -hmm. and he's so excited because I'm reading the chapter that takes place when somebody's riding the metro under the Potomac and that's exactly what I was doing when I was reading the chapter and it's so cool. <laughs> oh, and him again because after that oh my god it's all it's <laughs> everything's wild so you know, that's not, I, actually, Queen City Jazz was a New York Times notable book, and I was interviewed by a whole lot of newspapers in the United States, and the main question was always, do you think this is really going to happen? Mm -hmm. And I said, I, I think this is science fiction. 
it's it's good, you know, for fiction. But if if anything like this happens, it won't be the same. It will be, you know, perhaps one small thread of this might come true. Uh, I was trying to write a a, a good American novel. Uh, well, I think, yeah, and at the time that you were doing that, it seemed to me that you and Paul McCauley were the only people who were doing the nanotech surge because Paul McCauley's Fairyland, I think, came out maybe a little bit before uh, Queen City Jazz. But it's also, I mean, I could use that whole quartet as a classic example of, of, of the two cultures thing we were talking about because on the one hand, it's hard SF um, that deals with nanotech theory, and on the other hand, you've got this whole panoply of American culture, you've got everything from Billie Holiday to Mark Twain by the time you get to you know, Mississippi Blues and that sort of thing. So you're doing a very culturally sophisticated sort of alternate, well, not quite alternate history, but resurrected history, together with a very sophisticated notion of, of nanotech with these wonderful images of bees. And, and, and uh, you may remember, uh, Kathy, we, when you were a guest at ICFA, we had a panel discussion about that, and I think Cheryl Morgan was involved. And somebody said we needed to put together a glossary for your uh, for your nanotech novels because the humanists who know who Billy Holiday and Satchel Page is <laughs> won't know any of the science stuff, and and the nanotech the, the science who know all the nanotech stuff won't know who all these you know cultural figures are. <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of a matter of reaching that just there's tiny tiny number of people who who. Uh, to whom all the, the references ring true. Uh, Joan Gordon wrote to me a number of years ago, and she says, okay, I figured out all the, the titles of the chapters except for one or two. Can you enlighten me? <laughs> <laughs> um, because they're, they're all, uh, a lot of them are fragments of song titles and things like that, but yeah. they, all, they all allude to the American arts, which was what I was writing about. When people saw that book first, go ahead. I'm sorry. Finish your thought. Um, I, I think that that because I think a lot of people who write science fiction, well, not a lot of people, but a number of people who write science fiction, uh, it's it's the only kind of fiction they've read widely in. So their mm. books are full of allusions and, and to and and build on 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 science fiction. Um, universes, but I did not come from that background. I came from more of a, a, a just a very wide reading of whatever I could lay my hands on, whatever I had time to read, and and uh, I did read some science fiction, uh, but but I wasn't really steeped in it the way a lot of science fiction writers are. So I, I think that that contributed to the uh, to the, uh, the the tone of that novel, and I think that that's one reason why a lot of people don't like to read science fiction. I'm not saying that they they like to read my no, my novels be, because uh, they you know hordes of people don't seem to have discovered them. But but I, I do think that um, and I'm not I'm not saying that they're any easier to read than any other kind of science fiction. But but I, I do think that perhaps science fiction does suffer by by being. Uh, so much entrenched in its in its own history and its own idea of itself. Well, we were talking to Paul Kincaid last week, and he was basically uh, he had written this review of a number of years best anthologies, and he was concerned that science fiction is spending a lot of time looking backwards. Hmm. Uh, yeah. And the point he was making is that maybe maybe science. If, if I'm not, Jonathan, tell me if I'm misquoting Paul. 
uh, that he said that science fiction's future has failed it in some way. And it paraphrases, but it's not too far off. At least the, the, the idea of the, the, the future that we believed in and that writers believed in and readers believed in in the 50s and 60s has failed it. You know, yeah. We've lost confidence that we are actually going to go to the stars, or, or in fact, or even into space in any significant way. Uh, there's an element of the community that is baffled by the, the, the practical options that, that, that sit before us and this ever inward turning uh, you know, move into social media kind of environments, those sort of things. Or the science itself is quite baffling in terms of quantum physics and all this oh, kind yeah. of thing. And so it's all too complicated. So let's tell a good old rousing sort of 1950s kind of science fiction adventure rather than try and come to terms with working out a credible future that comes from where we are now. Something which I feel like you, you are very much coming to terms with trying to do um, in but in, in, in more times than the shared dream. Well, what, what I have found, see, I, I don't really feel that way. I, I, I understand the great romance of science fiction. When I was starting to get published in science fiction, um, I was a member of the Vicious Circle writing group in, in Washington, D.C. With, with Ted White and Steve Brown, Dave Bischoff, uh, and a number of other members that had come and gone over the years. And I was, I was only there for two or three years and um, and Steve Brown, did I mention him? Yes. Anyway, um, uh, you know, I, I just felt that it just the, the romance of the just the history of science fiction and and what it in its where it in its own mind, so to speak, wanted to go. But I I think that um, yes, I mean we understand more about the universe, more about physics, but but who knows? I heard the other day that NASA has tiny little warp drives, you know, down in uh, uh, Cape Canaveral now that they're, they're working on. <laughs> Who knows? I'm, 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 cool. I'm very optimistic. But uh, see, research has changed from physics. During at the beginning of the 1900s, there was this, uh, the, the big frontier was physics. And, and we learned so much about light and matter and, and the big things in our, in our physical universe, time and space. Now the the great impetus in uh, scientific interest has has changed to the brain. Now we have the tools to uh, to actually try to understand how the brain works, and and so there are you know I'm I'm really excited about that, and I I used a lot of that in this shared dream, but I you know I just continue to read. I have big stacks of books about. Uh, consciousness brain studies and, and stuff like that. I, I used Eric Kandel's In Search of Memory as one of my um, biographies. His is a memoir. Uh, I, I taught a, a class last year, the year before last, uh, using biography to teach the history of science beginning with Darwin. So you know, I had about five, <laughs> five uh, biographies and I ended up with Eric Kandel's In Search of Memory because so I use that so much in, uh, in this shared dream, but I I do see this this kind of new new frontier in science fiction uh, beginning to to blossom because that's what we're looking at now, and we're looking at transhumanism and and we're still looking at posthumanism, which I you know a lot of levels I just find totally hilarious <laughs> having read 
uh, Ed Regis's Mambo Chickens and the Transhuman Experience. I think, I think that's mm-hmm. right. And um, so <laughs> that always sticks in my mind. But I, I do think that, you know, perhaps uh, space opera is its own particular niche. That, you know, I really don't think that will ever die. And but I, I think that science fiction certainly has the potential to to explore all the new research and, and stuff that's coming out right now in all kinds of directions. So no, I I, I just it, but I think maybe you're looking at, maybe you're looking in, in different directions from what science. I mean, go back to what Paul was talking about. The classic sciences, that is, simply writing science fiction based on physics and engineering, that may not be leading to any immediate changes. But you're talking about Eric. Kendall. When did that book come out, by the way? When did Kendall's book come out about? I think it probably came out in uh, maybe 2000, maybe 2010, That's something. Or, or maybe, no, the, the, the paperback. Maybe more like 2008, something like that. I'm not entirely sure. Right. I, I, well, I was going to suggest that there are two things, because you just made me think of this while, while, while you were talking, that maybe two things are alternatives to the kind of traditional models of science and science fiction um, that uh, that Paul was talking about, which are the Campbellian you know, space, ex- essentially engineering fiction. One yes. would be uh, that. One would be the, the fiction of consciousness, the idea of that you can do alternative things with consciousness, which, which you've done. Uh, Daryl Gregory does a lot with that sort of thing. The other would be, uh, the, the other influential person, I think, is Hugh Everett. Um, mm-hmm. Because when I was thinking about, uh, I was looking at, um, um, who am I thinking, E. McDonald's Young Adult Series, Planes Runner, and then the mm-hmm. second one, My Enemy, um, which there's a char- character named after Everett. Um, it occurred to me that uh, I was looking at these 50 science fiction novels for a long time uh, when I was working on this Library of America thing, which I subtly managed to introduce into every podcast. <laughs> And one of them, one of them was bring the jubilee, and I was thinking, okay, back in the 50s, alternate history, alternate presence, alternate universes were fairly rare in science fiction. There's a story by Phil Farmer here. There's a story by Del Rey there. Now it's all over the map, and it's it's one of those things where it's it's not based in any physics where you say this is probable, but it's based in a physics in which you can say, well, this is this is theoretically not impossible. Right. And that seems to me to be a kind of shift between your nanotech quartet and and the in wartime's uh, uh, this shared dream thing, where, where you're, you're still dealing with quantum mechanics, but in a kind of Hugh Everett-y way. Yes, um, uh, you're, you're probably right about that. Uh, because that, you know, it, it, it just fascinates every everyone, really. But, but I had read... Um, um, course he had the 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 series brian green's uh uh the elegant universe back when i was writing light music and that's kind of what i based the the light music that the physics Uh, physics on so but these are ideas that that i had i had always thought about from the time i was you know a a teenager i think it's just a human thing to think in, in those ways but but i finding scientific underpinnings, no matter how extrapolated and stretched they might be, uh, is one of the things that I, that I tend to seize on. So, uh, the, you know, in, in physics, um, I mean, Gar- um, uh, 
Greg Egan mm -hmm. is is someone who writes a whole lot about you know the diverging present and and um, the other the other person that might come out of this present that you know, we might be arguing about and he does this in in ways he he uses virtual realities as all kinds of different mm -hmm. venues for for his his uh, his mode of thinking in his, in his fictional his fictional worlds but but he's he's someone <laughs> excuse me who who really uh, explores that a lot too perhaps not not so much if you know in in grounded physically as I do but um, but yeah I and I and I wonder I wonder why that is maybe maybe we will have um, uh, jet suits soon <laughs> I, I don't know that jet suits are a good idea anyway. It's just hey, like yeah, flying cars. I mean, really think about it for a minute. Mm. I'm just so concerned about sort of like burning my ass. <laughs> oh, I just can't figure out what the angle of the jet would have to be that wouldn't damage you in some way. But that's another question. That, that is very much. <laughs> I was going to ask, do you think it's harder to be a hard SF writer these days? You're asking me? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm not Gary's. Um, well, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> um, no, I don't. I don't think so because, as I said, there is uh, there is just no end of the wealth of material that you can use to to write hard SF stories. Uh, I subscribe to, um, you know, Scientific American and Science News and you know whatever kind of. Uh, science magazine you could possibly think of and uh the, there's just a wealth of of of, <laughs> of interesting discoveries yeah. and possibilities that a, that a, a science fiction writer can uh, can spin off there well, well let, let me nudge that a slightly different direction is it hard being a woman writing or harder to be a woman writing hard science fiction than in your opinion it is to be a man these days or just generally well, no, I, I don't know about that. I'd always thought that there there was no no difference, but as a matter of fact, there are very few women writing uh, science fiction, hard science fiction, right now. And and uh, so I don't I don't know if it's harder or if it's just something that most women don't don't even think about. I'm not I'm not really sure. I don't I don't well, know if it's. Did you get I, a I'm sense? Not, I'm, I'm sorry. No, you me. go ahead. Oh well, I was going to say that the the um, the science bits of the nanotech quartet were a little bit more sophisticated and difficult to. Uh, they were they were they were worked out in a way. Let me put it this way: that required a little bit more tolerance for understanding scientific theory than the alternate universe bits of um, in war times. I mean. Um, you, you've got some reference to this Hadnett's effect, and you've got some spectacular scenes, but basically, it's easier to understand what's going on in, in war times than it is to understand what's going on in the Nanotech Quartet. Is that a fair statement, do you think? I, I think that probably is, and I think that the uh, the author kind of finessing and or hand-waving or whatever you want to call them, those, those kinds of, of aspects of their... Uh, book works works well, and so then you're 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 traveling along on the spectrum to where you uh, may be writing uh, something that is still could be called respectable science fiction, but is more on the 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 
easier for the general public to get interested in and travel through the entire book with you than with uh, something that is uh, so so arcane as the 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 inner workings of a of a fictional future technology like the nanotechnology that I, kind of a bio nanotech that I envision. That's, that's exactly what I was getting at. That, that the had had is am I pronouncing the hadn't 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 whatever, which I always thought was a pun on hadn't, um, but if it wasn't, <laughs> it is. Not. Um, but that you're right. That can a reader can go back and say I don't understand how that works, but it has something to do with changing. The future, and I'll buy that. In other words, it becomes a convention in that kind of fiction. Whereas, if you've got these bees flying from tower to tower in in the nanotech, people are going to think, "I don't understand." In other words, there's more work to be done in understanding how those bees work. Well, I've you know, I I I, I did I did try to make them you know, flight worthy. Well, they're cool. <laughs> they're totally cool bees. They are. I'm simply saying. When you talk about nanotech in the ways you talked about it in, um, in that quartet, you're talking about something that requires a somewhat more sophisticated approach on the part of the reader than, than something like this Haddon's effect, which is it's, it's, it's maybe based in quantum physics, but it could be magic. Something happens that can affect the future. That's all the reader really needs to understand in those novels. Right, right. And, and there's uh, there's... You know, a lot more going on. Well, not necessarily more than the characters in Queen City Jazz, but but it's it's kind of all about the characters and their and their choices in life and and um, cultural issues and and perhaps the the nanotech quartet. It's just a different slant on the the present, which is what science fiction is really about. Well. Um... You, I mean, I know it's, it's interesting looking at, we should mention, by the way, their short story collection is out from P.S. called Angels and... Wait, you Dogs. Angels. Just Angels. very well reviewed in the Los Angeles Review of Books just, just last weekend. Or just last yeah, week. yes. that was nice. And, um, and uh, well, it will be reviewed in Locust very soon. Uh, <laughs> oh, nice. Uh, but you've also got the, the, the trade paperback of In War Times coming out now. But the, what I was getting at with that is some of the stories in Angels and Other... What's the title of you it? You Dogs. Angels and You Angels Dogs, and Harry. Dogs. I keep wanting to say Angels and Other Dogs. But <laughs> <laughs> it's Angels and you, Y-O-U Dogs. Yes. I know. It's, it's like a sign that... Uh, it's like a, 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 an right. ad. Uh, but, uh, but there's some stories in there that are virtually mainstream stories, except for a little tweak here and there. That's, that's what the reviewer, uh, I guess Mike Levy in, in the... Uh, Los Angeles Review of Books said, and mm. and yes, it's it's. I've published over uh, forty short stories. Uh, I, I don't really know how many, in a lot of a lot of different venues. All the, you know, professionally, like in Asimov's and and uh, um, fantasy and science fiction and amazing mm. and uh, tomorrow, what a lot of anthologies and oh, in fact, I have. Let me so subtly say, I have a story out in Discover Magazine right mm -hmm. now. Cool. Love Supreme. Yes, this month, month's issue, which, which you know, it's it's really not, you know, it's supposed to be kind of like the near future. It's it's you know, it's science fiction, but it's very very readable. It's like That's a, a possible, overpopulated future. So, um, 
So in terms of, to, to get back to your other question about being a woman and, and writing science fiction, I, I do get a number of, of uh, writing jobs. I, I don't have time to write just stories that I might send to Asimov's or something, just stories mm -hmm. that I'm reading because I'm getting a lot of requests for, for jobs in specific market, which is very nice. So the... Um, mm, Go, go ahead, Gary. You were, you were talking about well, something. Uh, uh, no, uh, it, it strikes me as interesting. I mean, we can, we can come back and talk to specific stories, talk about specific stories. I like Sundiver Day a lot, for example, uh, as a character. But I think what uh, Jonathan might have been getting at is that there has been, uh, if you look at historic histories of science fiction, um, even histories of science fiction frequently written by women, uh, there's, there's this assumption that women write about social science and men write about physics and engineering. And what I thought was interesting in terms of um, the nanotech is that you had clearly worked out all the physics that you needed to work out in those stories. And, and, and that world shows up again in some of the short stories as well. I mean, there's a, there's a kind of, there's a, there's a, there's a hard-boiled private eye story, uh, I'm blanking on the title right now, which is set in that world, am I right? It's, it's called The Bridge. And uh, yes, I was invited by uh, Stefan Nico. Uh, in uh, in France, he was the editor of Galaxies, mm -hmm. and he was putting together an anthology of science fiction detective stories. And he published Queen City Jazz and Mississippi. Well, he published Queen City Jazz and translated Mississippi Blues to be published, but I they didn't do it in in France uh, a number of years ago. So uh, so he asked me to write a story about, and I sent him one story, and he said, you know. This is this is kind of okay, but I want it no, more noir. So so that's when I came up with the bridge. Hmm. Because you've got a couple of noir stories. Electric Grains is pretty noir, also. Yes, but it doesn't have a detective with whiskey in his drawer. <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> that's when it's noir. <laughs> so you, you got to have it's a kind whiskey, of noir, but whiskey it's soaked just... detective to be noir. Yeah. Oh. It's, it's a very evocative story about the D.C. area, and you've written quite a bit about D.C. and it's. Um, it's like one of your things, isn't it? Well, yeah. We moved to Washington, to the Washington area in, in 19... Uh, actually, we drove into Washington on um, the night of New Year's Day in 1961. And we had been driving all day. We had flown from Hawaii. My dad, we were living... We lived in Honolulu before that for, for a year and a half. And so... We had flown to Ohio for, for New Year's, Christmas and New Year's, and then we drove to Washington. And oh. so we we drove into Washington at night. We'd been driving all day through uh, Pennsylvania. It was snowing the whole time. And and, and I, I my parents really didn't know where they were going to stay. I think my dad was starting work the next day or two. And, and so across a big rainy intersection, I saw a people's drugstore. And I said, "Look, let's go there and buy some comic books." <laughs> that was that was uh, not not well received. But, uh, <laughs> that that's when we moved to the Washington area. And and yes, for for me, it's, it's just a very evocative environment. You have the the confluence of of government and in politics. But for me, mostly Washington is neighborhoods and. Uh, uh, I, I've just spent a lot of time in Washington in, in various eras, and I, I just love it as a city. So 
I do write a lot about it. Mm -hmm. I, I do have a question which sort of lead, leads forward a little bit. Uh, several years ago, you wrote a story for me for the Starry Rift, Sundiver Day. And I remember you saying at one point you were working on a novel set in that er, that that milieu. Uh, uh, and I'm just wondering, what's next for you after sort of the seven novels that have been published, the four nanotech books, The Bones of Time, and In More Times, The, Sh the Shared Dream, and with the collection out now this year, what, what's next? I'm not entirely sure. I have been working on, as Gary knows, I've been working on a novel about the key, uh, Florida Keys in, in the mid-30s for a number of years, but I haven't moved very far forward in that because at the time when I turned in this shared dream and I was getting ready to, to go ahead and finish that novel, um, I got the job offer at Georgia Tech. And uh, mm. so right now I'm, I'm coming to terms with um, with the time for writing, but I do have a lot of ideas. I imagine that they'll be uh, in in the realm of. Uh, I'm working on a story right now about a, a a girl who has various kinds of synesthesia, and uh, mm -hmm. so th those are the kinds of things that that really interest me right now. And I have no um, firm novel ideas, but I'm sure I feel as if I'm in the the kind of phase that I that I realize kind of like. A migraine aura, where <laughs> I, I feel a novel floating far off, <laughs> and I have to submerge myself in it. So, uh, and and it will it will probably be be science fiction. So, um, so I, I I can't say for sure, but uh, there's a lot there's a lot of potential. Like I said, I'm, I'm very excited about science fiction right now. I really am. So you do think it's 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 not in, a, in it's not on the ropes. It's got to the new possibilities or new I, I think as long I think as long as publishers think of think of it as is like you know we we just have to kind of do the same thing and uh, science fiction is is so segregated in bookstores and culturally mm -hmm. so I, I think that's just part of the problem and I think that uh, perhaps there is there may be um, some kind of bridge between these the, these two cultures of, of science fiction and, and and mainstream fiction where I think people are becoming more and more interested in in science and scientific possibilities and well perhaps maybe I'm completely wrong about that I, I don't know I think um, you're a little naive to be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah but that's always been true about me so that's nothing well I mean there, there, there's an optimistic there's a there's a thing which um which I saw in, uh, especially in this shared dream, that there is a sense that the future, we're still capable of fixing the future. We're still capable of making a better future than, than the one we might be falling into, which I'm not saying that's naive, um, but the notion, uh, because I think you make a persuasive case for this shared dream of a kind of utopian vision. That's a different question from the question of whether science fiction is really addressing issues that... Uh, that people are concerned about. I mean, we're dealing with a presidential election now in which, you know, half the voters believe in angels. Uh, <laughs> country, so. Uh, but I guess, I guess the um, point I was... But how many millions more are there that don't? <laughs> well, that's a yeah, yeah, you, you want to be careful with your, pe your pessimism. 
<laughs> you want to be careful with your pessimism, Gary. I mean, you could ask, who, you know, how can anybody be reading hard science fiction in a country that is the highest college dropout rate in the industrialized world? That we is a problem. But there are people who obviously read it and love it. And we were talking earlier about, you know, the way it's received and the the, the, the uh, difference between the uh, the way it's treated within sort of the, the science fiction media and then within the general media and within literary society and everything else. Mm-hmm. And yet there has been a New Yorker issue of uh, science fiction of the New Yorker, which is an interesting thing, even though it's not quite what we'd, ex- what we'd expect. Uh, I think it's really interesting that we're getting quite chunky, interesting articles appearing about science fiction in places like the Los Angeles Review of Books, where they're, they're not really simplistic, light sort of fluff pieces or anything. They've got real meat on their bones and there's been discussion in places like the Washington Post and the Guardian so it's it's it, it, to some degree it's shifting isn't it I think it's shifting I really do it could be my naive optimism but I, I do I do think it's shifting I think that greater numbers of people are understanding that their lives are completely enmeshed in science and technology whether or not they understand it uh, they, they can appreciate that fact and, you know, science fiction is not a textbook. It's, you know, they, they, you, you don't have to, to learn to be an electrical engineer before no. you can appreciate mm-hmm. science fiction. So I think that's, that's the, the point at which perhaps science fiction might want to leave some of its uh, geeky aspects behind without losing the flavor, mm. without losing the authority of, of you know, not, not, you know, taking the warp drive apart and showing everybody exactly how it works, but instead um, making it interesting and exciting and human mm. so that, so that a lot of more, more people, like, like I was saying, when I was young, I, I really couldn't relate to science fiction. I saw it as a completely grown up male oriented uh, kind of writing, but mm-hmm. the more kinds of people who are writing science fiction, the wider audience it will have, I think. And the, the more the more different cultural uh, issues that are explored uh, through science fiction uh, will also widen the scope of, of the literature that's called science fiction. So, um, I think that's I, true. I think, I think you could make an argument based on what I'm seeing from my own students. Um, that one of the most influential writers, in terms of science fiction's readership, and in terms of the broadening of science fiction readership, that possibly one of the two or three most influential writers of the last 50 years has been Octavia Butler. Yes. Uh, simply because I see among my students people who would never have thought that science fiction was accessible to them getting into it through her works, usually through Kendra. Yes, exactly. And I taught... Um I taught Octavia Butler last year, and, and I have, you know, the same experience because you can just read a novel or a story straight through, and you're in the story. You don't have to stop and think about whether or not it's it's mm. it's possible. She just really draws you right in, and and, uh, and there you are in the midst of all this this strangeness, and yet it's it's uh, it's part of it's it's the subtext. And yet, it's it's also what's happening, but it does not throw readers out as as Neuromancer right. did, for instance. Yeah, uh, and, and that's exactly what I think is one of the things which is optimistic is that there is a lot of science fiction that invites people in. I mean, I know Octavia herself, who I talked to her about it once, did not really think of Kindred as a science fiction novel. 
right? because uh-huh. she knew her way around science fiction. She says, I didn't think of any mechanism for this to happen. It's basically um, a novel. It's good, but, 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 mm. but that itself is a kind of radical statement that you can have a fantastic event happen in a novel simply because the novel needs it to happen. Mm. I, I would say that you know, I, I hope you don't lose your naive optimism. It sounds like it might be a good survival trait for science fiction to stick on, you know, to, you know, to keep hold of if we're going to find a way forward for it and not end up in a moribund, uh, nostalgia-tinted field that's on, only wanting to sort of you know, recreate Ed Emshwiller covers. Hmm. Right. Yeah. It, you know, it may it may acquire a new name. Who knows? Who Maybe. Knows? <laughs> Who knows? As awful as that might sound. Well, on that, we are at about uh, about our, our our time, Gary. I should I should oh. let you know. So maybe we should look to wind up. Okay, I'll have to talk to Kathy about some of these ideas later. That sounds fine. We could invite Kathy back again. Well, I mean, I want to make one more point. That, yeah, sure. Because one of the things one of the things that comes up in um, in this shared dream, which is a very I think optimistic novel about the fixability of the future. But one of the things that comes up in that is is the Kennedy assassination. And it's interesting that you're approaching that, and I think other science fiction writers have, in about the same year that Stephen King is approaching it from the mainstream angle. And there's a point at which those two approaches converge. There's a point at which somebody can write about an alternate Kennedy assassination, and it's neither regarded as a mainstream person doing a weird thing or a science fiction person doing a characteristic thing. And at that point, maybe we'll have broken that barrier, but I think the barrier is still there. I, I, I would have I would have to agree. Yeah. Okay. Well, on that note, Kathy, thank you very much for joining us on what is episode 117 of the Cood Street Podcast. It's been wonderful having you here today. It's been wonderful to to be a part of it. So thank, thank you very you. much. And we'll talk soon. Absolutely. You, you can find it's Kathy... Gu- you and I will talk in a week. We will talk in a week. And if you're listening, you can find Kathy Goonan online at goonan.com. Her most recent book is the collection Angels and You Dogs. And her most recent novels are In Wartime and This Shared Dream. Until next week, thank you very much.